Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Well, welcome back. We're here in season three of the Think Orphan podcast, and I can't be more excited. It's been a little layoff, as you out there know, but fortunately, we were able to have a couple highlight shows um, and some recasts of some amazing episodes. Last week, we had Peter Greer, and that was really in preparation for what we have in store today. But the first thing we're going to do today is something I'm really excited about, as I kind of teased a little bit at the uh, end of the season two highlight show for the four or five of you out there that may have stick, stuck around for that ending to that uh, episode. But uh, we have a new co-host this season. And, you know, as much as we're going to miss Kelly, I am so excited for who we have for you. And as I, as I told you, she's been on the show. So you've been introduced to this amazing woman. But uh, I will now announce it. I've been keeping you in suspense for way too long. Karen Hutchinson uh, is our new co-host for the Think Orphan podcast, and again, I'm I'm really excited for you to get to know her better this season. So, you know, without me talking too much about it, uh, Karen, you know, you're you're here, you're here with us, and um, why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, why you think I think you're such a great fit for this uh, for this show, and you being the co-host with me. Thanks, Phil. I'm so excited to be here and be a part of the Think Orphan podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm just really, really excited about the next year and the next season. My name is Dr. Karen Hutchison, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and own a private practice called the Center for Family Connections. Most of my work focuses on helping children and teenagers and families have healthy relationships. I do a lot of work with families who've grown through foster care and domestic adoption, international adoption, embryo adoption. And I also do a lot of work with missionary member care. And that term may be a little bit unfamiliar to some of our listeners, but essentially what it is, is it's the idea that those of us that are in any type of helping profession, but specifically with international missionaries, is that we're intentionally taking care of ourselves in a holistic way so that we can take care of others, whether that's sharing the gospel or providing uh, physical medical needs or mental health care or soul care, pastoral care. It's the intentionality with which we take care of ourselves so that we can better take care of others or share the gospel or serve families and children. I'm also an adoptive mom. My husband and I, we grew our family through adoption about eight years ago. We adopted two children from Ethiopia when they are seven years old and they're 15 years old now, which is absolutely crazy when I think about the fact that I have a two 15 year olds. It blows me away. Um, and we also have two children by birth. So I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I am a clinical psychologist. I'm a doctor. I'm a Christian. And I have a lot of experience working and living overseas. And, um, yeah, I'm just really, really excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Phil. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you're all that and more. I mean, that's the thing. And you're, you're very humble too. So you're not going to pump yourself, which I knew you wouldn't. So I'm going to do a little bit more here. Um, you have not only spent time overseas, but you've been able to consult with so many different people and talk with so many people and help so many people in missionary member care, but also with, you know, just your psychology expertise, your adoption. Um, your husband's a pastor and he's able to do some great things with the people that you're working with in different places. I've gotten to know John Mark and, you know, love the guy. And it's been such, so good to get to know him just a little bit I have. Um, but uh, you also have been working with uh, an organization that, that works to fight against human trafficking, which is, you know, those of you listen in, you know, that's a big part of what we're talking about on this show. So really the orphan prevention stuff, the poverty alleviation stuff, you've, you've really been able to see firsthand the human trafficking. You're working hand in hand with this organization, everything in the traditional orphan care spectrum, the mentoring that you're really doing in the counseling right? In different ways. Um, and so, you know, anything else that, that I've forgotten, you know, I'm sure will come up, um, as we, as we get more and more into this, um, into this season and hopefully, you know, well beyond that. So, so your, 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 uh, you know, just your, your gut reaction that you had to the Michael Miller interview that we're about to, to get to listen to. Yeah, Phil, when Phil asked me a couple of weeks ago to consider being a part of this project, I was so excited and was doing some research and starting to prepare and, of course, listen to Michael Miller's interview with Phil. And I've got to tell you, I was just absolutely blown away. I thought, Phil, you're really going to have me do my first recording with this crazy smart guy. And um, I was really intimidated, but I was also more importantly, just really challenged to even grow in more of my own understanding of what Christian love is and what charity is, and even helping me with my understanding of healthy relationships and how important it absolutely is to walk along the side of people who are serving or who we're working with, or even um, doing ministry with here in the United States or internationally, I was just really challenged in my own mindset to grow in those things, but also just to learn more. And I learned so much from listening to Michael Miller. Yeah, so did I. And I know you all out there will as well. Michael, um, you know, before we get to Michael's interview, I just want to share real quickly after his interview, stick around for sure, because we have thoughts from the field from Rwanda. We have a, a recommendation on a book that, uh, you know, will help you with any, any kids that you have that might struggle with, you know, their, their confidence, um, in, in any way, in any field, in any sport, in any school, whatever, there's a recommendation I have for you on that as well. Um, but Michael Miller, this guy is the producer of Poverty Inc. and the Poverty Cure series, which if you haven't seen those, um, for sure, Poverty Inc. on Netflix, go, go watch it. You know, even if it's before you listen to this thing, but definitely after, I know you'll want to watch that. He's also the research fellow and director of Acton Media at the Acton Institute. As Karen said, this guy is crazy smart, but he's also really, really humble. And that will come through in this, in this first part. And this is a two-part interview. So I have no doubt that once you listen to part one, you will absolutely want to come back next week and download part two. But, uh, you know, before, um, you, you know, before you sit in here and go, oh, well, this guy's crazy smart. I want to just kind of 
I better not listen because I'm going to be challenged too much or I won't be able to understand it. He actually brings it down to a level that we all can understand. And so definitely you're going to want to take some notes. And, and also, you know, we say this a lot, please, please engage this conversation with us. Do some, do, you know, give us some comments on Facebook or on our, on the iTunes, you know, through a review, rate the show on iTunes that will help it get it out to more people and share it with your friends, share it with people that, you know, will be helped by these episodes. And as you know, from last season and season one, it's not just people who are super passionate and uber passionate about, you know, adopting or fostering or, you know, the children of the world. These are issues that apply to all of us everywhere in the world. And so of the 72 countries that have so far downloaded this, I know that it applies to the everywhere that you're living. It applies to everyone, you know, in the U S where I live. And so I really encourage you to get this word out for this, for this show and rate and review it and just engage it in whatever way you can. So as with that, we're going to kick it, kick off season three with Michael Miller. And I can think of no better way to do it. So here we go. Michael, it is so great to have you here on the show today. Phil, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, well, well, I know that uh, you, you're doing work with the Acton Institute um, all over the world. You have been directed and produced Poverty, Inc. and the Poverty Cure Projects. But I know that most people listening in today probably don't know a lot about you. And so I'd love for you right now to just share your uh, story and uh, what led you to your work with the Acton Institute. Um, all right. Well, I don't think there's that much interesting to know, but, <laughs> but, um, so I, I've been at the Atkins Institute for about 11 years. I'm a research fellow here and I've done other jobs, directed programs and things. But, um, uh, my interest in these areas and especially in, in poverty, just kind of over time, I have, um, I, I studied literature and philosophy at undergraduate and some economics as well, and always have been inter- interested in this intersection between economics and philosophy and ethics and theology. And then I uh, lived in Japan for about five years, and when I was there, I studied um, development. Yeah. And was at that time, I was kind of taken by this kind of deep concern for the developing world, but I, I was – how to articulate it, I was – kind of disturbed by what I felt was a type of social engineering, right? That we're going to kind of solve problems through policy things on poor people. We're just going to kind of put this template upon them and everything's going to work out. And and I was, and I remember since, since the, but they're not things. Poor people are persons just like us. Mm. And there was this almost anti-personalist element to the way, um, we thought about poverty, at least the kind of dominant view. And so at that point I said, okay, I, I, I'm going to go study philosophy again um, because I was a bad student and undergraduate. <laughs> I learned actually if you if you go to class and do your homework, you get better grades. That's so, yeah, amazing. It was, it's it amazing. was huge. No, I really. <laughs> That's what got, the price of admission today. Absolutely. Folks. Any any young people out there, I highly recommend. Don't fall asleep in class. Do the reading. Pay attention. Take notes. You're going to get good grades. Um, don't do those. Not so good. So anyway, um, I said, okay, I'm going to go back and, and, and study. And I, I really did study on, on philosophy of the person, philosophical anthropology, and what is a human person? What does it mean to be a person? Um, the complexity of the person. And this, in many ways, is the thing that kind of shapes everything that I do. Uh, um, and so then I ended up teaching philosophy and political science. I lived in Nicaragua. My wife and I lived there for three years. Mm. And then... Um, I, uh, after doing that, I got, I said, okay, there's no money in teaching philosophy and, um, I have got to go do, so I got and went and did an MBA and I did an MBA in international management 
And then after doing the MBA, I got a job with a nonprofit. So I talked to a, a theology professor I had and I told him, I said, well, I did an MBA and then I got a job with a nonprofit. And he has this great voice. He said, that was stupid. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but I came to the Acton Institute, which I'm very happy to be here. And, uh, and Acton is really, it, it, it really does the intersection of moral philosophy and theology on one hand and economics, entrepreneurship on the other. So it was started in 1991 by uh, Father Robert Sirico and a, a layman named Chris Maurin. And it was really to kind of address this question, like how do we take seriously Christianity and Christian anthropology and take seriously economics. And mm -hmm. so there's about 40 some people here on staff. Uh, we're ecumenical, we're uh, people from all uh, Christian um, traditions. Um, and it's fun. I and mean, this is highest common denominator ecumenism. Everybody here thinks everybody else is going straight to hell. So it's good fun. Uh, but that makes for good Christmas parties. Absolutely. So anyway, and then, uh, so, and that's, and that's what we do here at Acton. And so the work on poverty really emerged out of that focus on, 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 this intersection between the human person creating an image of God with creative capacity mm. and an eternal destiny. Um, and then taking economics seriously and trying to examine these questions about poverty and economics through the light of theology. Right. And that's how I ended up at Acton. Well, that's, that is fantastic. And it's a, a great kind of how God weaved a story in there. And, and, and one of the things that I know you alluded to there that we're going to talk a lot about uh, today, um, most of what we're going to talk about revolves around this idea that you've talked about and developed over the past few years. And that's really the idea that we not only need to have a heart for the poor, but we also need to have a mind for the poor, which actually takes a lot more work. It's not nearly as attractive to donors and, and the quick fix mind of the developed world. Can you briefly explain that concept and, and why it's so important for us to understand? Well, I mean, there's a lot of layers on that in one sense. Um, but, you know, so I guess one way to, to think about it is... <clears throat> So remember this bumper sticker years ago that said, practice random acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Christians really are not called to practice random acts of kindness. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to open the door for people. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that Christians are called, and all human beings, but specifically Christians are called to exercise the virtue of charity, of mm -hmm. Christian love, right? That is guided by reason and oriented to truth. Mm-hmm. Right, so let me unpack that. Right, we're the Christian love. What is Christian love? It is to seek the good of the other. It's to will the other's person's good. It's to desire their benevolence. That's Christian love. Right, that's love. Mm -hmm. And then ordained by reason. Right. Well, why? Because we're created an image of God, and in the beginning was the logos. And logos means word, as we know, but it also means reason. And so we're we're reasonable beings created in the image of a reasonable God. And so we're supposed to act with love according to reason and it's oriented to truth right so there's a theologian he says charity without truth degenerates into sentimentality hmm. okay let me repeat that charity without truth degenerates into sentimentality just feeling feelings on behalf of the poor right but so we're supposed to exercise not feelings on behalf of the poor we're supposed to exercise the virtue of Christian love to seek the goodwill of another person in a reasonable way because we're reasonable beings oriented to truth and the truth about that person, right? Mm. Who is not an object, is not a thing, but a subject, 
right? And I mean that in a grammatical sense, right? Not a subject of a king, but a subject, a protagonist, right? right? And that what we've done really is, and, and I don't, and I don't think it's because we have bad at, uh, intentions. I don't think it's like people are bad. I mean, I'm sure there's always bad apples, but that's right. like 99% of people who want to go help the poor do it because they, they feel they're called to do something, right? Mm-hmm. We're Christians or non-Christians. It's like, okay, they see people in suffering and they say, I want to do something about it. Right. But the problem is our model, I think, is disordered. And, and, and this, I think the dominant secular model, but also the dominant way Christians think about it. And we've reduced – We've moved away from Christian love, charity, into humanitarianism. Hmm. And we haven't taken truth seriously, and so we become sentimental. So we feel feelings. And so what happens is we turn poor people into objects, Hmm. objects of our charity, objects of our pity, objects of our compassion. And then – sorry, instead of treating them like subjects – like persons created mm-hmm. in the image of God with an eternal destiny. Right. And then, but so we have this broken kind of objectification. And I mean, we could talk about, I don't know how much time we have, but we could talk about, you know, how the Genesis gives us deep insight and in why we do that. But, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe that's for another, another time. But we, we treat people like objects and then we combine a kind of modern social engineering mm-hmm. and we're like, okay, we're going to like do these 10 policies and we're going to eradicate extreme poverty forever. And no, we aren't. And so what ends up happening is we have these strong feelings. We care about the poor, but we don't sometimes put those strong feelings in a context of the reality of the human person as a subject and our guide to reason. And we also don't take economics seriously enough. So we end up doing policies that actually harm the very people we want to help. And that's a theological and a philosophical answer, which I could make it more concrete. But um, sometimes, you know, Phil, I, I'm going to be a little bit polemical, you know, when we want to care for the poor, we get this idea like, no, no, yeah, okay, that's interesting, all your philosophy and theology stuff, but I want to do something. Right. Well, yeah. Unless it's the wrong thing. Right. You know, and, right. and I'm not saying, by the way, that I, I have the right thing. If mm-hmm. I had the right thing, I'd, I'd, I'd be on like a even bigger podcast than yours. Yeah. Right. Okay? Right. So, I mean, <laughs> there are some of those out there from what I've heard. Me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I, what I'm saying is that, you know, good people can disagree and there's not a single solution, but that I think we do need to take very seriously you know, the, the mental models, the framework through which we approach the way we engage with poor people. And I would argue, and this is what we argue in Poverty Inc. and mm-hmm. Poverty Cure, that the dominant mental models, the dominant frameworks of the way we think about poverty are sentimental and social engineered and they're broken and they don't take seriously the reality of the situation and the dignity of the person. And this is what we mean by you need not just the heart for the poor, not just feelings on behalf of poor people, but you need to really think things through. Absolutely. And so if you'd like, I can give like, like a concrete example of well, we'll where we get have there. Feelings. I think we'll get into those for sure. Um, if, I mean, if you want to share that now, I mean, maybe that we'll, we can refer to it later. Why don't you, why don't you go ahead and do that now? And then we'll, we'll get into that. And I want to want, while you're doing that after sharing that, why don't you just go and you mentioned poverty cure and poverty Inc., which I actually, you know, for everyone out there, I'm not just saying that because Michael's here, but I think it's one of the most important works on poverty that I've seen or engaged with over the last several years. Um, well, phenomenal you. work there. I'd love for you to share the story and then tell us about those those pro- that project. Really, it was one project that resulted in two different um, a movie and do- a documentary and a series. Um, and what kind of led you to make it happen? Sure. 
Um, well, thanks for your kind words. I'm glad you found it. It was hard. <laughs> I, bet. I bet it was really hard. And I, luckily I work with really super bright and talented and hardworking people who are committed. So we, mm-hmm. we were able to get it out and we were, we're really blessed and delighted with the response. I mean, poverty Inc, for example, um, you know, is really for general audiences and, right. and, um, the underlying philosophical thread is kind of the things I talked about. It's the person who is a subject and not an object. Right. And, um, and we've been delighted. I mean, we've had people from the right and the left from the center endorse the film. We've had free market economists uh, say it was it was very powerful. Michael Moore, the Michigan filmmaker, uh, you know, who's quite well known, mm-hmm. uh, progressive, said it will change the way you think about the third world forever. Mm-hmm. And so we've been super happy. Played at many universities, so that's been uh, that's been encouraging. I think, and I think part of what what's happening is we're hearing a lot from the developing world. Look, what you've been doing is not helping. Right. <laughs> And so like, we're not saying anything really original, um, but uh, we were just trying to articulate uh, some of these things that have been said over the years and the way of thinking about, about that. But yeah, so the project, so there's two things. There's a documentary, which is a full length film, 90 minutes. Um, It's, uh, we played in about over 50 film festivals and, and, and then uh, the film is now available on iTunes and on Amazon and Netflix. So, uh, you can, you see the film if you haven't seen it, um, and do please, if you, if you like it or if you don't like it, go to povertyinc.org and you can tell us what you think. Cause we're always looking for feedback. Um, and you can also host screenings if you think like in a church or in, in the university, it's, we can still do screenings for those. Uh, and then the, the, the poverty cure DVD series is a six part uh, series that covers many of the same things, a little bit of overlap in the two, but they're pretty different pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, poverty the poverty cure is really explicitly Christian. It's right. for Christian audiences and it's to, to question, to think like, like Christians about this. So like we, so for example, when we talk about private property in poverty cure DVD series, right? We talk about, okay, well, what is the scripture? The, what does the Hebrew Bible tell us about this? What do we know from the 10 commandments? What do we know from Genesis? What like Genesis 23, Abraham is, um, negotiating to buy a, a, a burial plot for his wife, Sarah. And, is talking about title and what does this tell us about title? And, mm-hmm. you know, so we kind of address those things and we deal with the question in acts about like, can Christians own property and all these kind of things. So, uh, in the, in the film, in the documentary film for general audiences, we don't get into those right. kind of biblical questions. So anyway, so they're, they're, um, out and they're available. You can get them at povertycure.org or at, um, at Amazon as well, or at the Acton Institute, acton.org. Uh, you can find those, um, Anyway, so that's the projects, and, and the idea was really to kind of wrestle with these com- this complex thing based on some of these philosophical and and anthropological that is philosophy of the person insights, mm-hmm. um, and and I think the other thing is that kind of going back to what we were saying before, like you know, if the, remember the first time you went to the developing world, and I like, you go, and if you're, I mean, both of us grew up in Southern California, so right, right? I mean, we we grew up very blessed, and mm-hmm. so. You go to the developing world for the first time and you see a leaky roof and dirt floor and it's emergency. Yep. Well, it's an emergency for us. Right. It's not an emergency for them. This is a chronic situation that they've been in for generations. Mm -hmm. And so what happened, this goes back to the feelings. Like I've got to do something like, well, okay, what? And we end up kind of saying, I'm going to come and solve the problem instead of asking deeper questions. Well, why is there poverty? Right. And more, even more important, why is there wealth? Why, you know, throughout the history of man, most people have been very poor. Well, why are we able to live so well here in, say, the United States? 
or in Europe when people in other places aren't. And once we begin to start asking those questions, it starts to change the perspective, right? right, right. So like you hear a lot of religious leaders, I mean, and celebrities, uh, politicians, but you hear religious leaders a lot saying, you know, if North American Christians were more generous, we could raise $84 billion and we could eradicate extreme poverty forever. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, no, we couldn't. Right. We couldn't because poor people are not poor because they lack stuff. Mm-hmm. Poor people are poor primarily because they are excluded. They are locked out from institutions of justice, mm-hmm. right? Things that we take for granted in the United States and Europe, but things that are also part of the Jewish and Christian traditions. Right. Things like clear title to land. You know who owns the land you live on, right? It can't be taken away from you very easily, right? It's stolen from you. Just access to justice in the courts. The Center for Research and Governance, I think in India is the name of it, did a study. It takes an average of 20 years to get your court case heard. Hmm. And it's expensive. So if you're poor, if you're a widow, if you're an orphan, you're locked out. If you don't have clear title to your land that says it's yours and you're poor, you're disenfranchised, you're a widow, you're an orphan, it can easily be taken away from you. It can be expropriated very easily, right? And then you can't get your court case heard and so you're locked out. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we talk about in both Poverty Cure and Poverty Inc. is um, ability to register a business. Right, right. And this, like, this is a, a kind of amazing. And for some of the listeners, like you, like you've heard this, it's not a big deal. But I remember when it strikes, it struck me when you first hear it. Mm-hmm. Like, wait a minute. There, and this is all over. But um, one of the people who's done the, probably the most work to highlight this is a man named Hernando de Soto, who's an economist, a Peruvian economist, not the explorer. Uh, uh, and, uh, I think it's what's called Institute for Liberty or I think is the name. I forget. It's Institute for Liberty. I think is the name of this organization. Anyway, he started doing these studies like, okay, let's see what it's like to build, a, to, to register a business. All right. So, you know, let's say you and I Phil, decided we're going to start an entrepreneurial venture. We register it. We could have the whole thing registered in one day. And, um, we've got our license, you know, we've got our, you know, our, our, our tax thing set up and we're ready to go. Right. Yep. We're an LLC and we can move. Well, he said, OK, let's see what happens with the poor person. So they they set up a little sewing machine shop like five kilometers outside of Lima in Peru. And they said two sewing machines. And they said, OK, we're going to we're going to register the business just like a poor person would. And so DeSoto got four student lawyers and said, OK, your job is to follow every rule and regulation and pay every money, every you know every fee to be able to sign it to register this business. And so he, and they, and you cannot drive around in a white air conditioned car, right? With right. an NGO sign on it. Right, you got to right. do it like a poor person. Yep. So these four student lawyers went around every day, following the rules and regulations, filling in the paperwork, taking public transportation, and it took them two hundred and eighty nine days. Yeah. To register a business. And DeSoto says it really powerfully. The legal systems are simply unfriendly to poor people. Mm -hmm. You cannot register your business unless you know the minister. And so what happens is poor people are excluded. And the problem is, and this is complex, but the problem is a lot of the charity that we do, a lot of the aid that we give, whether it's official development assistance, foreign aid or private uh, donations of money, actually end up creating incentives for governments in the developing world not to build the institutions of justice. And right. so poor people are excluded. They're locked out. Right. As one person said, we give them things or give them money, give them things, but we put up rules that prevent them from selling to us and doing business with us. Yep. 
So we create this deep level of dependency. And then this goes back to the problem. I think that our, our framework is broken. Absolutely. We have limited horizons, yep. right? We're thinking, Oh, I got to solve the problem right now. Instead of asking, how can I walk alongside this person to help them flourish as a human being economically over the long run? Yep. And those are totally different questions. No, absolutely. And I, and I, I think, you know, we could go, this could be a two day interview if we got into all these issues. And the nice thing is for everyone out there, these concepts are fleshed out completely in, I mean, in poverty Inc, they're fleshed out pretty well, pretty amazing, you know, incredibly well in a, in a hour and a half documentary, but in poverty cure, these ideas are fleshed out in, in segments and in ways that have real great examples. There's a bonsai tree example, for instance, that is, you know, it's, it's this idea in a, in a small pot, you know, for is exactly what it talked about, which is the idea that the seeds in bonsai trees are just as they're great seeds. It's just the pot that causes the tree to be so small. And that's the idea here too, that this pot that these, the poor people are in is what's really keeping them constrained. It's not the people themselves. They're incredible children of God with amazing gifts and talents. But like you said, and, and it goes to the, the quote that starts the Poverty Inc. movie, which is the quote from Machiavelli, um, said, those who will lose from change have all the power and those who will gain from change have no power. And can you flesh that out a little bit? And you, you mentioned it, the idea, the concept in that, in that last answer, but just that idea that, that a lot of people don't understand. And I've talked a lot about with people around the world. And it's that, that idea that the people in power really have no incentive to help people out of poverty and how that impacts what work is actually done in these cultures. Can you, can you flesh it out what you saw, what you learned? Well, yeah, I think, you know, part of it is that we are talking about these good intentions and how you want to help and, and what we do. And what happens is, so if we go back to, so I think there's actually, there's two things related to both of the comments you made, the bonsai tree, you know, the bonsai, the bonsai tree question and, and, and peep the pot is small and Machiavelli, the power question, I think are, are kind of related. So the way, the dominant way that we've done assistance, foreign aid and charity over the last 70 years is this idea if we could transfer large sums of, of money, large sums of, of, of resources over, we could help countries make the leap to industrialism. Mm-hmm. Now, foreign aid is really important. Foreign aid is what's called official official development assistance. These are tax dollars go to governments who transfer to governments. They're public money. Okay, so when I say foreign aid, I mean I mean that. Now, mm-hmm. there's other billions of dollars of assistance going around from private places too. They're all they end up sometimes being overlapping. But so we've given all, all this money into the to the developing world now. The idea is, okay, if we could transfer this money over, if we could build electricity, infrastructure, education, uh, you know, we have that here. They're going to become wealthy over there and it'll, it'll, you know, take off. So there's – the problem is, is that foreign aid has ended up politicizing economic development and really like the economist Peter Bauer says, politicizing life. So foreign aid becomes the primary source or not that problem, but one, a, big, a major source, and sometimes even one of the largest, you know, parts of receipts, depending on the government, uh, of, of income into the government. Foreign aid becomes a really important thing. And so if you're getting your money from foreign aid, right, well, what's the incentive for you as a government mm-hmm. to build 
private property, rule of law, free association, free exchange for the people. Right. Well, you don't really need that because you don't need a tax base, right? And this is what Herman Jenner has, like a Ghanaian entrepreneur talks about this a lot. A lot of entrepreneurs, like Malik Fall, who's a Senegalese entrepreneur, said, you know, aid has delayed the development of business in Africa. Mm. It's kept Africa behind. Why? It's not just a simple single business. It actually delays the development of a commercial society. Right. And so instead of having a lots of businesses that are paying taxes and now having something to say in relation to the government and also funding private voluntary organizations and churches and other things, instead of that, we start with that, then you'd have this kind of pressure on the government and there'd be a relationship back and forth between the government and its people. But what happens is foreign aid cuts that relationship off because now, and Michael Fairbanks talks about this in the film, the, the focus of the government officials is not on the relationship with the people and taking care of you know their constituents. It's on relationship with donor organizations in Washington and Tokyo and Brussels and Paris, mm. right? So it, it, it ends up – so what's happened is it's ended up kind of politicizing economic life and creating incentives for governments – not to build the very things that keep people, uh, that allow people to flourish. Now, here's the point about the change. If these incentives get built, there's two, there's two things that are happening. If maybe there's three or four, but if, <laughs> first of all, if, if private property rule of law free association is built and poor people are able to create prosperity in their own families and their own communities, you don't need a poverty industry anymore. Right. You just don't need it. And so I, I'm not saying here, Phil, that that people who work in the poverty industry are like, yeah, let's keep people down. No, of course not, right? But the incentive structure, I mean, this guy won a Nobel Prize for this, right? It's called public choice economics, that organizations and bureaucracies operate in many ways a similar incentive and structure that human beings do. And most people don't want to put themselves out of a job. Hmm. And so the poverty industry actually has incentives to keep people poor, right? Whether the, whether the individual workers want that or not. That's the incentive. Yeah. So that that's one of the problems. So the thing is, so, and then the second thing is, is if you're if you are in a you know the elite of a, of a poor nation, you don't really have any economic incentive to create the institutions of justice to allow poor people to develop because you're doing fine. Yeah. Right now, that's why you need a moral incentive. Mm -hmm. Right, evangelization is very important for these kind of things. You need a moral incentive. This idea that justice requires that we do this. Right. Look, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Honduras. I lived in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. Let's just say you're, uh, you know, middle class, upper middle class in Honduras and Nicaragua. And this is a little bit provocative, I'm going to say. But you know, you may lament, "Oh, it's so sad. We're so poor." But do you have any economic incentive? to have lots of people wealthier? No, in fact, it's the opposite. Why? Because if everybody's wealthy, you won't have a maid and a driver and a gardener. You have to do the work yourself. Right. Right. So, I mean, and again, this sounds provocative. I'm not, I'm, I don't wanna be very clear. I'm not saying rich people are bad and it's bad to have maids. Yeah, no, of course yeah, not. Yeah. What I'm saying is there's not an economic incentive alone, right, because you're doing fine. That's why there needs to be actually moral ecology and a moral incentive. Yeah. So. It's not a simple solution, and there's like there's these two guys um, named uh, uh, what's his name uh, Robinson. What's Robinson's first name? I forgot. Anyway, Robinson and Darren Osimoglu. Robinson's at um, at Harvard, and Osimoglu is at MIT, and they wrote a book called Why Nations Fail, and and a lot of this is 
rehashing some of the work of the economist Douglas North, who's done a lot of work on institutions uh, and others. And they make this point. There are two kinds of political economic institutions, inclusive ones that basically have private property rule of law free association or extractive ones that take the wealth out. Right. And most poor countries have extractive institutions and most wealthy countries have more or less inclusive institutions, right? Well, the error they make, and it's great. I mean, they're right. Okay, that's right. But the error they make is they somehow they have this radical kind of demarcation between culture and political institutions and economic institutions. But in fact, the those inclusive political institutions like clear property rights, mm-hmm. justice in the courts, ability to register your business – really to get a fair trial. All of these things don't just pop out of nowhere. They actually emerge out of certain cultural sources. Mm. And guess what those cultural sources are? Those That's the Hebrew Bible and the Christian tradition. Right. So actually, Christians have lots of things to say and contribute to these, to these questions of institutions of justice. All right. So anyway, I know I'm getting a little complex, but let, let me make another point about this kind of uh, the power and exclusion and, and some of the errors that we make that kind of relates to your question about, um, your, you know, your, your, the point you're making about, um, you know, how, how people are included and things. So what we kind of do in the developing, the developing world is we make what's called the, the, the a correlation fallacy, right? So you, you most of your listeners obviously know what that means, right? So, but just a quick review that a correlation fallacy is that because, two things are correlated doesn't mean there's a cause. Right. And what you erroneously what we erroneously do, we all do it all the time, right? Um, that we take something that things that are correlated and we get a cause from it. So Michael and Phil are talking and it's um, 16 degrees outside where I am. Right. Yeah. Right. And snow on the ground. And so that's correlated because we're talking and it's cold. Right. Well, that doesn't mean that Michael and Phil caused that. Right. Right. So, so this is a really basic example. I mean, people don't make those errors, but here's a correlation fallacy that we make a lot of time. You look in the developed world and say, Oh, you know, we have high levels of education, good infrastructure and, um, and, uh, we have healthcare. Well, you know, wait a minute, these things are really important and poor people are sick and they don't have education. It's hard for them to get on roads. If poor people had education, healthcare, and infrastructure, they'd be wealthy like us. Right. Or, you know, people in the United States have only 2.1 children, and people in poor countries have 5.1 children. If poor people had fewer children, they'd have more to go around too. Like, no. Okay. Those right. are called course correlation fallacies. We can talk about population. That's a huge error that everybody makes, but we can talk about that later. But these are called correlations. So, but let me tell, let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So if you have high levels of education in the developing world, okay, you're highly educated, skilled and trained and you know, very talented person, but you don't have clear title to your land and it can be taken away from you. You're not going to build a business on that land hmm. because it's not it's it would be irrational to do so. Right. If you can't register your business because you're locked out of the legal system, right? Yeah. 
you're not going to build a business because it can be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. So if you're highly educated, but you don't have the institutions of justice, right? Then what are you going to do? You really have, you have three choices in front of you. You're either going to despair. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're going to despair. And so Herman Jr. Hesse in the film, he's a Ghanaian entrepreneur. He says this line, he says, he's like, poor people are not, are not stupid. They're disconnected. He said, you're stuck in a hole with all your skills and all your talents. And that's just unfortunately the way it is. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a certain sense of despair. You're just stuck. Like I'm talented, I'm skilled and I can't do anything with it. So either you despair, you give in. Number two, you leave, you migrate. And that's Mm -hmm. why you, you have millions and millions of people from the developing world coming to the United States and Europe trying to get jobs. Yeah. Right. Or you join the political class. Hmm. Right. And then your incentives to build opportunities aren't there because you're get you got that's how you got yours. Right. So education doesn't create prosperity for for the majority mm-hmm. if there's not the institutions of justice. Right. And that's the point that so that these 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 call co- these things like education, healthcare, and infrastructure are important, right? Like don't misunderstand me. But they are a result of wealth right before they become a cause of wealth mm. and so we have making these correlation errors going going on and and this gets filled up with sentimentality and you know we're not paying attention to like the real question of what is it that people need to create prosperity in their own families and communities and so we end up creating incentives that keep people poor well as promised. And as I expect, you probably agree with me out there that that was just some incredible wisdom from that man. Absolutely, Phil. It was really just great, again, to be reminded so much of his intentionality and just his vast amount of knowledge. I know I get really excited when I hear people that have such like-mindedness related to um, being intentional with the people that we're working with, whether it's here in America or overseas. And I know in some of my work that I've been able to be a part of overseas and and doing consultation and intentional work with uh, ministries or NGOs, I know that some of the things that I've seen firsthand is what Michael Miller talked about. When we get to a place where we erroneously assume that we know what's best for a people group, when we are not a part of that people group, and when we allow policies to become the norm when actually those very policies begin to harm the people that we're trying to help or teach or do life with. And when policies become that much of an importance and they start to actually harm the people that we're living with and doing life with and uh, walking alongside with, it becomes quite difficult, not only for our relationships, but for the organization or ministry in general. Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, what'd you think about, I mean, it, it was so good to hear him talk about because I've seen it, but it was, it was also, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts from the work that you've done around the world. Also just kind of just being in the, in the work that you do, um, and adopting from, you know, just being an adoptive mom, you know, when you hear about the things talking about where he said, the current models of poverty alleviation, including foreign aid are broken. And, you know, in fact, they, you know, some of our poverty alleviation work is unintentionally creating incentives to keep people poor, right? You know, what, what'd you think of when he was talking about that and, and, and how did that strike you? I'd just be curious to hear from you. 
You know, it, it was actually really humbling. And I think if nothing else, it, it reminded me so much. It was a reminder with literally an exclamation point at the end for me of, I don't know everything. And early on in my career and early on in my work with ministry, um, I was young and I was naive and maybe someone still, still say I am young and maybe even <laughs> a little, a little are, naive to you, too, but it's just a great reminder for me that, um, my desire to, to continually be learning and continually be um, surrounding myself with people that do know more than me and they can speak into these things because it is natural when our hearts are aligned with people and, and we truly and genuinely want um, to help and we want to be a part of, of change and, and global change. But so quickly, what we think is help and good for ourselves does not translate even to a different city or a different state, much less across the globe. And and I have seen situations firsthand where what started out with amazing intentionality from a great, wonderful um, place of Christian love and charity just really quickly become harmful to, to people that originally we were trying to walk alongside with and pour into. And it does create situations where there is no incentive to change or the incentive to change is not worth making those changes because the foreign aid or the funding that's coming in is actually helping the family or helping the child. And any change would actually not help the child or help the family. It becomes a very difficult situation to navigate. And unfortunately, what happens too is is that um, those of us or people that are working, especially overseas, it becomes very difficult to even see that our policies or our the way that we've set up an organization might need to change, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, and the other thing that this, this reminds me of is when Helping Hurts, where, where Brian Fickert talks about the systems and worldviews are broken and, you know, where the incentives to keep people poor are there. And it actually unintentionally creates that some, a lot of the work we're doing and a lot of the work we're doing unintentionally, you know, keeps these systems in place, keeps these worldviews in place and actually exacerbates the brokenness that is out there. And, and, you know, again, if I've, I think so many people have recommended when helping hurts, I'm going to do it again. Um, you know, and I'm, I, I know that uh, Brian and I are talking about getting him on this show. And so hopefully that will happen sooner than later. But, uh, you know, it's just stuff that reminds us more and more that we need to be thinking about these things so deeply whenever we're doing any work anywhere in the world, including in our own backyard, that what are the potential unintended consequences and how can we mitigate against them? How can we protect against them? And, you know, that, that kind of brings us to the thoughts from the field today. Uh, I was able to sit down with uh, Baraka from Rwanda and she's, she's doing some amazing work over there. And I'm just gonna, I'm not even going to give you much, a whole lot more than that, but I just want you to listen to these words from her and, and I know you'll be able to learn from them. So here's, here's the thoughts from the field. Again, Baraka, in Rwanda. Uh, hello, I'm Baraka Poret, a psychologist from Rwanda, Kigari. I have my own uh, clinic practice, and uh, it's 12 years that I'm in this field of trauma hearing. Specifically, I help children, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about what the children are facing today, especially in Rwanda, the orphans. 
After genocide, um, of course, we had many orphans. And now it's 23 years. We have seen the results of uh, how children who have been in orphanage, it's hard for them to build their own families because they've never been in, in the families. So now the government of Rwanda has set up a good program of closing orphanage and encouraging families to receive orphans so that these children will have hope and be able to build their families. But the big challenge is that um, these children who are orphans, they, they live with their own trauma of loss and unsolved grief. Uh, and if nothing happened to help them, the families receive them, think they are just normal children, and then they don't know that sometimes the symptoms will come so fast or late and they face challenges. Uh, there is a big need of training people to understand the child trauma and how to take care of these kind of children and also for these children to understand themselves because sometimes they, they don't know really how much the losses will affect them. I get so incredibly excited, literally cannot um, keep myself in my seat when I hear information like Baraka is sharing. What a privilege and honor to have her be a part of our show today. She is doing amazing work overseas, and I am so thankful that she is helping families and medical professionals and ultimately children and teenagers understand the reality of trauma and what that looks like. The fact that even though the genocide was decades ago, a couple of decades ago, that we're still seeing the ramifications of this huge amount of complex trauma and the things that she's doing and the things that she uh, was talking about are so very important, not only in Rwanda, but here in America and in other countries, um, across the globe when we, for a fact, absolutely know that children thrive in families and that institutionalized settings are not the healthiest and safest place for children. And that when any type of child and any type of teenager has experienced trauma, abuse, and neglect, that that situation, that impact in their life is going to be probably longstanding without like God totally, um, intervening and, and, and having a miracle happen to remove that trauma that that child and that teenager, they're going to experience those things throughout their life. And it doesn't mean that they're, um, in a situation that's hopeless, but what it means is that trauma impacts the body and it impacts the brain. And that even if a child is placed into a family through alternative care or family preservation or reunification within the country, these are wonderful things, but that caregivers, families, aunties, people need to understand that are bringing these kids into their homes, that these children may have emotional um, deficits. They may have psychological deficits, their ability to have a healthy relationship and to know what a healthy relationship even looks like is going to be diminished. And so I love what Baraka is talking about, of about providing this training and this educational piece to prospective families that will be bringing these kiddos into their home. And that is essentially, Phil, what I do here in America. I love that piece of my career where I get to speak to prospective adoptive families and prospective foster care families, and I get to help them to understand, hey, like this stuff is serious and this stuff is real. And the most important thing that you can do, not only for this child and for your children and for your marriage and for yourself, is 
is to be intentional and to just try to run and um, sprint towards knowledge and understanding of how you can help children who've experienced trauma, abuse, and neglect. Mm. Yeah, now that is, that's super encouraging. Yeah, I'm fired up right now, just just hearing you fired up um, because that's what I, I was hoping um, we could get this, this, this season really with you and from you is just, just this expertise, this, this life that you've lived to be able to understand these things and to hear these people talk and to hear your excitement after Baraka. I, I know I had it, but to hear from you, it just really comes from a different place and it's, and it's so rich and it's, it's so fantastic. So, so thanks for that. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely exciting. I think when I first meet people when I'm speaking or getting to travel and speak, a lot of people think like, do you work like 90 hours a week? And I say, no, no, <laughs> I just do a lot of different things in small increments. But ultimately, out, other than obviously Christ and, and God and his calling in my life and in my work and in my ministry and my career, the the tie together, the tying factor is, is systems. It's, it's organizational structure, whether that's in a ministry or a church or within a family or within a staff. It's ultimately talking about the healthiness of a system and the fact that relationships matter and that people are people. And that's exactly what Michael Miller talked about. And he emphasized Mm -hmm. that. And he emphasizes it even more in part two of his interview, which um, I'm so excited for you guys to hear. And I know you're going to be excited to hear it and learn from how he talks even more about those topics. Yeah, definitely. Well, now that that leads us into the uh, the first installment of Phil and Karen recommend. Um, it, it's it's not the first recommendations, but it is the first Phil and Karen recommend, and it'll still be a Phil recommendation today. So I, we're gonna we're gonna hold off. We can we can't give too much goodness from Karen in the first episode. We gotta you know give it in bits and you know bite sized chunks. But the first, uh, the first installment today, as I as I talked about at the beginning of the episode, is a book that I really I, I was recommended by two people within a week of each other that were talking about my daughter and some of the some of the uh, just just the challenges that she's having as a teenager, really not having confidence, not having self confidence in in the abilities and gifts and talents that God really has given her in amazing ways and. And so to try to, to say that as a dad is, is sometimes really difficult. And so different people, a couple people said, Hey, you know, you got to read this book. And when you hear the name of the book, you'll think, what in the world's that got to do with anything? My daughter doesn't even play this sport. She plays soccer, but this book is called the inner game of tennis. And some of you out there may have heard of it. Uh, Pete Carroll, who is the coach for the USC uh, football team back in, you know, the early two thousands, he had this required reading for one of his national championship teams. And that's really what got this book on the map. But the ideas in this book are so helpful for parents to really be able to connect and for coaches and for just people in life, for bosses, for different people to really encourage their teammates, their kids, their other family members, their, their colleagues to really trust in the gifts and talents that you've developed over the course of your life, that God has given you, that you've nurtured. And really your mind is so powerful to convince you that you're not good um, if you let it. And so this book really talks about is kind of mind one, mind two. Mind one is the, is the mind that basically is saying, you know, you're, you're messing up. You're not that good. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do the other thing. Mind two is the mind that really knows how to do things. It's your muscle memory, really, for lack of a better term. And, and, and that's what we're really trying to get these, these kids to be able to, to get to the point. You know, there's a great book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And he talks about similar things. When these things become muscle memory, when these things become habit, 
you're able to do things in ways that, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to do before and particularly, um, with the things that you are naturally gifted and passionate to be able to do. So I strongly recommend the book. It came to me highly recommended, like I said, from people that were completely different, um, areas of my life, um, coming completely different worldviews. And so, um, it really is a, it's a, it's a secular book. It really comes from really a humanist perspective. Um, but you know, you can overlay the gospel on that very easily. And you know, the, the truth of the gospel shines through in this as well. So, um, you know, with, with that recommendation, that's gonna, that's gonna bring, do you have any, do you have any parting thoughts there, there, Karen, as we, as we finish up your first episode, I'm excited for the things to come, but, uh, do you have anything else to, to share with our audience today? Just a, a thank you and a farewell and an overarching excitement to be a part of this project. Uh, thank you, Phil, for having me and believing in me. And I'm excited to see what the next year and the next season brings. Yeah. And, and again, you know, we hope that you take all that what you learned today. Um, and as we've said before, we'll say it again. Uh, we hope that you use it to help love orphaned and at-risk children more and more every single day of your life. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. And for all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.